Good day to you. My name is Brett. I'm pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially our guests. Welcome. Glad to have you in the house. Well, today we're going to continue our series on what it means to develop a godly identity, allowing the scriptures to define who we are, what we do, how we think, with whom we relate, and how we posture ourselves toward the world. Turn with me, if you would, over to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. The title of the message again is Developing a Godly Identity, Being Gods. Being Gods. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. Peter is writing and he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Verse 10, for you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Thank you, Lord. Help us as we study, I pray. Three things about this passage that I'd like to speak to you on. One, what it means to be a chosen family. Two, what it means to be a crowned priesthood. And three, what it means to be a consecrated nation. Peter is trying his best to drive home the distinction from what the people used to be to who they are. How they used to live to how they need to live. And that there is a separation and, and should be manifested in their life, this separation between good and evil, light and darkness, and how they affiliate that they ought to be identified more as the people of God than the people who they used to be, more identified with their family name or more identified with their career or more identified with their friendships or their ethnicity. But this is the people of God now. Now, this is pretty radical for a Jewish man. Remember, Peter was the one who got the last, he got to the place last of being able to identify who the people of God were. He was a, ma a man who was running the church, but he, he was Jewish in his orientation. That was his ethnic background. That was the way he lived. And he did not think much about the Gentiles being incorporated, meaning us who are not Jewish, we who are not Jewish, being incorporated into the covenant of God. He didn't think much about that. And he was really one of the last of the apostles to come to the idea of how important this was that God wanted to reach the entire world and if you look at the calendar timeline the church in Jerusalem had been going 10 years before Peter had this this insight in Acts chapter 10 with respect to the sheet dropping down and 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 animals pouring out of it in, in a vision he had and God telling him get up and eat well the animals who were pouring out of the the sheet were all unclean things meaning things that did not comply with the ceremonial laws the Jewish people we're supposed to, to, to follow. And he said, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. There was shrimp in there probably and lobster and ribs, all the stuff we enjoy. I, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. She went back up, came back down, said the same, same voice. Get up and eat. No, Lord, I've never eaten. You know, if Jesus is your Lord, how do you say no? How do you do that? 
no, Lord. Lord tells you to do something. You say no. Lord means ruler, master, the one to whom you must give your obeisance and you must obey. Your whole heart needs to be poured into this one that you call Lord. But when he tells you to do something, you say no. Is anybody listening to me right now? God's telling you stuff to do and you keep saying no. That is the largest oxymoronic term ever. No, Lord. Obey. Do what he says. Peter says no. She goes back up. Comes back down a third time. Says get up and eat and don't call unclean what I call clean. Peter repented. And he said God told Peter at that time. Now there's some men who are coming to you from the Gentile world. They're about to show up at the door right now. Now he was on, he was on the roof of a man's house named Simon. And he was up there enjoying, I guess, lunch, whatever it may have been. And he said, God told him, there's some people coming to the door. He went down. All of a sudden, Simon hears a knock at the door. He opens it. There are some Romans there. And Simon is concerned because Simon's a Jew. And he's thinking, what's going on? What do you want? They're saying, is Peter around? He doesn't know what to say. He's kind of like a... You know, a, a German that's, that's, that's keeping some, Jew, some Jewish people in the Nazi times in, in 1930 and 40. And he's thinking, no, I'm not going to tell him Peter's here. And all of a sudden, Peter comes to the back and says, don't worry about it. I'm going with him. Simon's going, what is going on here? This is nuts. Roman soldiers come to apprehend my apostle. But Peter goes willingly. And he goes to Cornelius' house. And Cornelius happens to be a, a, an official in the Roman army. But he loves God and the Lord has revealed to him that he would have an opportunity to come to know in a better way who he was. And so Peter preaches the gospel, Cornelius, his entire household, all get filled with the Holy Spirit. It is a moment. But this is 10 years after the church in Jerusalem gets birthed. By this time, Saul, who has changed his name to Paul, is the lead apostle at seeing the Gentile world changed and saved he's out there been doing it for a long time and has to now inform the church in jerusalem that god loves gentiles he loves people that are not jewish and finally peter gets it he understands it it took him a a little bit even when the the gentiles got saved that day when peter was preaching to him in cornelius's house they all got baptized in the holy spirit they all spoke in tongues and and peter said to his friends who were with him uh Wow, I guess, I guess we can't withhold baptism from them, can we? Which meant they were going to. They looked at we Gentiles as second-class Christians, people who could come into the outer court of the church but not the inner sanctum. And they were going to withhold all the covenantal privileges from us that he thought were relegated to the Jewish world. This is how messed up his mind is and was. Now, let's fast forward a little bit to this letter. What in the world is he talking about? He's talking to Gentile people predominantly and saying, you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Whoa, he has changed his entire mind about what God wants to do with the world. And he's encouraging not just Jews, but Gentiles to live differently. Listen to me this morning. This afternoon, live differently, you Gentile Christians. Don't live the way you used to live. Let Peter's voice echo through mine. Live differently. You are not a part of the world. 
You are not what you used to be. Identify with what God has made you and begin to stand up and live the way you should. Not to be arrogant, not to be brash, but to let the folk in the world know that Jesus is alive. He cares about them. And they are desperately looking for some real Christians, people who who represent him well. I'm begging you, start living right. It'll make everybody stand up and take notice. And you don't have to start living right like I live right. I mean, I'm not talking about preaching. I'm not talking about giving up your job and going to the ministry. Listen, the world is getting darker, darker by the second. It doesn't take much anymore. It doesn't take much to, sh- to shatter the darkness, just a little candlelight. Listen to me. Let me tell you how bad the world is getting. And, and this is going to shock you because I'm not going to talk about the things that you think are most bad. 20 years ago, 15 years ago, we used to have a thing called the phone book. Mm-hmm. All y'all who are millennials are saying, a what? Yeah, a phone book. Now, the phone book was this book that the phone company would hand out to every household in America and leave it on their front doorstep. It was about that thick, depending upon the community in which you live. So for D.C., about that thick. Every, listen to me, everybody's name, address, and phone number were in the phone book. Everybody. The only way you could not get in the phone book is if you called the phone company and said, I want a private listing. Otherwise, you were automatically put in the phone book. Now, to all the millennialists and the people who have been indoctrinated with what our society becomes, we all say, that information was public record? (laughs) I can't believe the people knew my address. Really? That's the way you all lived? Wow! Today, everything is private. Why? Because we have more thieves than ever. This is how messed up our society has gotten in just 15 years. Everybody thinks, in fact, nobody would think that a phone book is a good idea. Yet, for the balance of American history that included Alexander Graham Bell the inventor of what we call the telephone, sort of. The phone book was a part of our everyday lives, and nobody cared. I know that doesn't seem like a big deal, but it's a pretty big deal when you rob people of security. Things that used to be assumed to be okay now aren't. And then we can build upon that simple little privilege we all used to have of being able to look up somebody's name and call them and find out how we could serve them. We look at that as being somehow a violation of privacy to let our information get out like that. Shows you how our society has changed and it's getting worse. It's getting worse. Now, I didn't mention something that was super moralistic. I just mentioned something that was more administrative to show you how we have changed And we could talk about all the moral stuff we want. But darkness is getting darker. Getting darker. We can't assume that everybody has our best interest in mind anymore. 
we, we can't assume that our neighbor really loves us and, and isn't going to use the information he gets from us for our ill. We can't assume that. And everybody is on guard now. And again, the moralistic stuff, the lack of morals, that's just, that's just the biggest thing we see. My point is this, it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much to shatter the darkness. Just somebody with a little bit of righteousness that's above anybody else's can make a huge difference. Peter says, live right. And first, he talks about what it means to be a chosen family, beginning to, to let them know that there is a, there is a different identity with, with which they need to, to relate. The word, the word chosen there actually means select. That God chose you. It's as if all of us were in foster care or in an orphanage. And God came to your orphanage and said, I choose you and I'm going to give you my name. And he brought you into his house and he loved you. And he, he healed you from all of your abuse. And he cared for you. And he educated you. And there was not a day he didn't make you think that you weren't birthed from him. Now the people of Israel were, were the first people of God. The danger that the people of Israel began, began to get into was the thought that they were not only the first, but they were the only. And that's, that's, all, that's the danger we all have. I mean, too often when God treats us special, we forget that we aren't only children. We are, we're not an only child that there's a whole family he wants us to relate to and a whole family he cares for. But that's not to take the emphasis off the fact that you were chosen specifically by him, particularly by him, that when he called you, he called you because he wanted you now. He wanted you specifically. He wanted you at that point. And he wanted you so bad that he kept calling you even though you would not respond he just kept calling. That's how bad he wanted you. And it's not like his choosing you was going to add value to him. You were going to be more problematic. Probably more effort to save than, than was ever going to be received in terms of benefit from you. The liability was going to be much greater than the benefit. But he chose you anyway. Because he loves you. And love is one of those inexplicable things. You can't put a rationalization on love. It just makes no sense. As soon as you begin to rationalize it, it loses all of its power. One of the, one of the scariest questions a man will ever be asked by his wife is, why do you love me? As Pastor Jim says, that's a great moment, husbands, to fake a seizure. Just go ahead and get sick, fall out in the ground, flop around. Because there's no good answer to that question. Even if the answer you give she likes, which sounds something like this, because you are so beautiful. You are the apple of my eye. I could not have desired anyone more than you. You make me happier than 10,000 maidens ever could. I am enthralled with you. There is nobody like you on the earth. God made you just for me. All of that sounds great. But it doesn't get to the core of what love is. Because so much of what we 
discuss with respect to why we love somebody is conditional. It's conditional about upon how we feel or how they make us feel. And when, what happens when, when we no longer feel the way we feel? Or what happens when the magic is gone and they no longer make us feel the way we want to feel? And now you wake up and somebody's got bad breath? And somebody hurt, hurts you and does, does you wrong and, and lies to you or, 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 or cheats on you or, or betrays you? What then? How do you answer that question? Let me tell you how God does Because he loves us, and his love doesn't doesn't ever stop. There's there's not a rationalization to it. There's no reason for it. He loves us for no good reason at all. Because as soon as we put a good reason on it, then sooner or later we'll we'll violate that reason. And then would he have to to stop loving loving us? I mean, think about it. I love you because you, you, you don't lie. Well, eh, wait, wait, wait a minute. Just, just wait a minute. I, I love you because you, you, you don't lust. Well, <laughs> yeah, about that. I love you unconditionally. God chose you, not because of the benefit that you could bring to him, but because he just decided to choose you. And that is the most securing thing in the world. Because if he just decided to choose you in spite of your mess ups, then there is nothing you can do to stop his love for you. Good news. You were chosen. And not only were you chosen, but you were chosen as family. The word there when Peter tries to talk about what it means to be a chosen race, the word race is the word genos, which, which most often is in the Greek is reflected toward a particular family, a generation that goes one after another, after another, after another in a family, kind of like a genealogy. That's where we get the word from. And so he's talking about a particular family, not just a a. a kind of people but a so God brings you selects you to be a part of his family not just the organization called the church but his family called the church oh we are doing all we can here as large as we grow to keep the environment of brother and sister family with God as our father relationally connected to one another not just looking at Sunday mornings as the only significant moment that we ever interact with one another, but we pray for one another and care for one another, and we ask one another the hard questions, things that that we don't want to hear people ask us because it makes us uncomfortable and that the answer is not always as, as integral as we would like, and we have to confess our sin to one another, and we have to let people see our, our ugly side and, and all of our issues that they might pray for us. So they can help us. And then as a result, we grow closer together because now I've got a brother in arms with me, a sister who cares about me and will fight for me. We desire family more than crowd. I love the crowd. Jesus had crowds. People who would come from all over the place just to hear what he had to say. He didn't 
he, he, didn't, he didn't push him away, but his, his primary desire was to minister to these folk called the disciples. And as a result of ministering to them, not just caring for them, but ministering to them. In other words, equipping them, helping them to become what they didn't know they needed to become, inspiring them, developing their leadership. As he ministered to them, they were able to minister to others and multiplied and made the group that was then to be called the church in Acts chapter 2 much larger than what Jesus built when he was on the earth. We want family. And this is what the early church had. This is what Peter was trying to convey. You are a chosen genealogy, a chosen clan, a, a chosen kin, a chosen family. May you experience that here. You may not have had a good family growing up. You may have had a good one, but it wasn't as good as it should have been. Or you may not have had one at all. I want you to know that here we're doing all we can to plug up that hole in your heart. You're a chosen race, different kind of family, God's family. You're a royal priesthood. You are a crowned priest. Now, this is interesting because in the Jewish mindset, there was no such thing as a priest who ruled. All the Levitical line was responsible for the house. They were the priests of God. And so they cared for all the articles of the temple as well as the high priestly functions. But nobody in the tribe of Levi was ever qualified to rule. That was to come from the house of Judah. So when Peter speaks of a royal priesthood, he's talking about something completely different here. We spoke about it a few weeks ago with respect to Melchizedek that's mentioned in Genesis chapter 14. He was the only one other than Christ to be known as a priest who was also a king. Melchizedek was the one who came out to meet Abraham, or Abram at that time, after Abram came back from a great victory where he had rescued his nephew Lot and rescued Sodom and Gomorrah, all the people and all the goods, from five kings who had taken them captive in war. And now Abram was seen as the hero. But he was the hero by rescuing not just his nephew who had been taken captive with Sodom and Gomorrah, but rescuing Sodom and Gomorrah, a people that nobody thought deserved to be rescued. In fact, probably once they were taken, everybody was saying, finally they're gone. They were not a hospitable group. All you got to do is look in Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 48 through 50, to find out why God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah ultimately. Meaning, Abram rescued them, but... Four chapters later, God destroyed the city. This is how bad they were. And we'll see that in a minute as a reflection of the king of Sodom and his response to, to Abram. Melchizedek comes out realizing there's nobody in the earth like you, Abram. You rescued people that were not worthy of being rescued. Does that sound like anybody in here? Anybody at all? You've been rescued though there was nothing of value to rescue other than the fact that God wanted to rescue you because he loved you. It's not like you were such an asset to the world. He saved you because he decided to. He placed value on you when you made yourself worth less. I didn't say worthless. I said worse, worth less. Yet God saved you 
Melchizedek was impressed with Abram that he saved a group of people that nobody liked and thought deserved judgment. He came out and met him with bread and wine. And he was the first one in the promised land that understood who God was like Abram understood who God was. See, Abram knew God because God called him to come to the promised land, but he had never met anybody, at least in recorded history, that understood him like Abram understood him until Melchizedek came out and said, Blessed be the God most high, maker of heaven and earth. Oh, Abram said, You know him? Oh, come on, let's fellowship together. I don't know anybody. What's he been talking to you about? Because he hadn't told me much since I left my home. Oh, there was fellowship, bread and wine. That meant a meal. That didn't just mean a little wafer and a little uh, 0.4 ounce jar of grape juice. It was a meal. They fellowshiped. And then he said, blessed be Abram of Most High. Oh, he blessed Abram. He worshiped, and then he blessed Abram. And he was the only king and priest in all of the Old Testament until Christ comes. Now, we know the Old Testament and the New Testament are two different things. We realize that two different books that make up the whole story of God. But hear me. Jesus lived in the Old Testament. I know he's written up in the New Testament. I get that. But the New Testament is more defined by the demarcation of the cross and what Jesus did in terms of theology than it is just applied to when Jesus was born. He lived under the old covenant Jesus did. And so we, we benefit from everything that Jesus did, but most importantly, the fact that he gave his life. And that's after the Gospels. So Jesus was really an Old Testament figure, or better said, an Old Covenant figure that's listed in the New Testament. However you want to look at it, what we see here is that Jesus was the second version of a royal priest. We see this over in the book of Hebrews. In fact, Melchizedek is called the type and shadow of who Jesus was. And that Jesus is our high priest. He's the one that came in to the, the Holy of Holies, the veil was rent in two. When, when he died on the cross, it says the veil of the, 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 the temple, the, the sanctuary in, in Israel was rent in two. Jesus was our high priest and he ever lives to make intercession on our behalf. He was the one who could ultimately be the gap between our sin and God and bridge that gap. That's what a priest should be. In fact, the word priest in Latin means bridge builder. One who makes a way for people to get to the other side. Jesus did that, yet he was also a king. He was of the tribe of Judah. And the beauty is that his mama's pedigree, her, her genealogy, came from the tribe of Levi. Daddy's came from the tribe of Judah, though Jesus was not actually birthed by Joseph, but he was raised by Joseph. And so we see king and priest genealogies meeting in Christ. As a result of us being in Christ, we now are a royal priesthood. Meaning our job is to do what he did now that he's gone. To intercede for the world and to be the bridge builders that can connect people to God. But hear me, we can't do that well unless we live well. Because every time they step on us and we have hypocrisy in our life, their foot goes through the floor. Wait, 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 oh, 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 I thought you said this bridge was solid. Paul says it like this in Romans, talking about our two natures. 
He says in Romans chapter 5, verse 17, if the transgression of the one brought, brought death through the one, if the transgression of the one, meaning Adam, brought death through the one, so death ruled through Adam, then how much more will the grace of God, will grace and righteousness through the one, Christ Jesus, bring us into a realm of reigning through the one? Meaning this, that death ruled over all mankind and sin, as, as the motivator behind that death, ruled over all mankind through Adam. And every man born on the earth has had to submit to that. And they've been bent to go, to go the wrong way from their birth. This is what we call original sin. It's not that somehow sin originates every time somebody is born. It means original sin started with Adam and then it is carried on through mankind. And it's not that a man becomes a sinner when he sins. It's that a man is a sinner and that's why he sins. And this is why you never have to teach a child to ever be selfish. You never have to teach a child to rebel. You never have to teach a child to, to the, the word mine. Somehow it's just ingrained in their soul. When they see some child taking their doll, mine. Where'd you learn that from? We're bent the wrong way. Death and sin reign. Paul says, how much more will grace and righteousness through the one reign in life through Christ Jesus? Meaning that we get the privilege of having a different DNA and that we get to rule over our lives through Christ Jesus. That we can have victory. We don't have to be hypocritical in our actions. We don't have to believe one thing and have our actions show another. Every time somebody steps on the bridge of our priesthood, they are founded in, in stability and integrity and righteousness and victory. We help them get to God. We aren't the insecure environment whereby people aren't quite sure, okay, I know God's real, but I don't know about y'all. I don't know how heavy I can step in this reality. We allow them to place both feet firmly on our lives and say, listen, perfect I am not, but consistent I am. And you can walk with me and at times walk on me if you need to. If you don't know where to find the support, you can use me for a minute. I'll pray. I'll bring you to God. I'll help you know him better. And when I make a mistake, I'll repent in a hurry. But I will love you consistently until you are formed into the image of Christ. That's the kind of life we need to live. A royal priesthood. One that rules well over the circumstances of our life. We can't shoo some circumstances away. They won't go. But we can rule well over them. Better said maybe in them. But I like over them better. But I, I realize your ears. Rule in them well. Understand what we need to do and make the highest and best decisions. Highest standards, best conduct decisions in the midst of our trial that sometimes put the nails in our hands and feet as we, we, we pick up our cross, but others benefit. We rule well, and thereby our priesthood has integrity. 
And then lastly, we're, we're called to be a holy nation, a consecrated nation. A nation that does things different. We believe different. We're not trying to be the world. Oh, we love the world. And we're going to do everything we can to lay our lives down for the world. But I disagree with about everything that the world says is true. I disagree. And that disagreement is only a confirmation of my sanctification. I'm different. I'm consecrated. I'm set apart. That's what consecrated means, holy. Set apart from everything in the world. Jesus, in, in John 15, said, I called, you. I called them. He was praying to the Father. He said, I called them, in John 15 and 17, and set them out from the world that they might not, might not be of it. We are called to be distinct, and that is uncomfortable. Everybody wants to blend in. Everybody wants to fit, but you don't fit. You don't fit. Say it differently. You don't fit like you want to fit. You fit as a healing balm in a sick life. D did you enjoy the castor oil that mama gave you? Oh, we, we way past that. that. That's my generation. Grandmama knew that if I drank this castor oil, I'd feel better than I did before I drank it. And I was sick, flu, whatever I had. Runs. But castor oil would help a brother. And so that nasty stuff, whoo, nasty. Cod liver oil, castor oil, oh, nasty. Those were the home remedies. I am so happy we have graduated from that. Woo! But I took it. And I don't know whether I felt better because the, the, the pain of the castor oil just made all the other stuff go away. I don't know, but I felt better. You're to be fitting like that. The, the element of salt that is in a corrupt environment, the wound of society. Put salt in it, it hurts, but it'll clean it. That's how you're to fit. You're not supposed to fit just being completely relevant with everything society does. You're a different group of people. You've got a different authority, and you are his ambassador. And he's calling you to walk like him, to say only what he says to do only what he does to serve at his pleasure you're a holy nation set apart for his purposes and we need to be in lockstep with his will people who want his will to be done in the earth more than we want our own to fit in like that This is what Peter was trying to convey to the people with respect to identity. You're a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a chosen race. You are different. Live like it. Let's pray.